All right. You can open up your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 8. We'll be continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, by the way, uh, the older I get, I am I'm beginning to preach the benefits of, of consuming dried grapes. You know, it's all about raising awareness. Come on, that's funny. I know that's funny. All right. Mark 8, chapter uh, verse 1, let's read. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. And then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave things, broke them and gave them to his disciples to sit before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. All right. We know during Jesus' earthly ministry that he, uh, he focused his attention primarily on the house of Israel, right? We just studied that the last couple of weeks. In Mark, uh, Matthew 10, you can read about him commanding the limited commission. We read this also in Mark. The limited commission meaning he sent out the disciples to preach, to preach repentance, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, but he limited them to go only to the house of Israel, to the Jews at the time, right? And remember last week we talked about the woman, the Syrophoenician woman who came saying that she would eat the crumbs like the dogs that had dropped from the children's table. And Jesus had told her, you know, I have to feed the children first. Referring to the fact that he had come to the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles. That was to come, as we know, eventually. Matthew 28, Mark 16, which we'll get to eventually. He gave that great commission, right? That was to go out into all the world, not just the house of Israel, all the world, making disciples of all nations. And so that was to come. But at this point, he is simply here for the house of Israel. He is fulfilling prophecy. He is the Messiah, the prophet who was to come into the world. And he is uh, preaching. He has his ministry going. He is healing those. And we have this miracle here, the feeding of the 4,000. The setting, of course, he says, in those days, which connects it with the other miracles that were going on. This is during the time when he is performing many miracles, many signs and wonders, right? And he places it in, we place it in the area of Decapolis, which was southeast of the Sea of Galilee, known in that region known because of the 10 cities in that region. And these cities were primarily Gentile cities, mostly uh, Gentile region, east of the Sea of Galilee, very few Jews that lived there, but it was a, uh, it was a profitable area. It was a very fertile area. It was a very uh, rich area in natural resources uh, along the Sea of Galilee there, and there were many that lived there, many who had heard about Jesus and had come to hear what he had to say, even though they were not Jews. A uh, great multitude who had been with Jesus for three days, and now they're in a wilderness region without food uh, far from their homes. Well, some things to tell you to say about this miracle, right? Jesus uh, is filled with compassion, right? He's filled with compassion for his people. 
he, this, of course, was completely unforeseen by his disciples. They're not prepared for all these people to be there, right? Using only seven loaves and a few small fish, Jesus gives thanks first. That example, right? And then performs a miracle. Out of those seven loaves and a few small fish, seven large baskets were left over. And these are large baskets. In fact, they're probably the same kind of basket that you can read about in Acts 9 when Paul, or at the time of Saul, was lowered out of the window in Damascus because they were seeking to kill him. That type of basket we're talking about here. This occurs after Jesus gave thanks, of course, and the feeding of the 4,000 is a small number because, you know, there were probably women and children which don't get counted in this situation. Well, this miracle is, sound, is very similar to the one we had before, right? The feeding of the 5,000. Similar story, right? What were some differences, though? Well, you can look at that. First of all, the feeding of the 5,000 was in the region of Galilee. It was to the Jews. It was more the house of Israel, where in this case, it's more to the Gentiles. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, they were with Jesus for one day. So they may have been hungry, but they weren't famished probably because they weren't with him for three days, as those in the Decapolis were. The uh, miracle in, uh, in Galilee occurred near villages. They were closer to home. Here, they're out in the wilderness, far from their homes, long ways away. Miracle of the 5,000, they had five loaves, two fish. Here we have seven loaves, a few small fish. 5,000 men here, plus women and children. 4,000 men, plus women and children. And then uh, the first one had a surplus of about 12 hand baskets, which were not that big. And then this one has a surplus of seven large baskets. All right. What's this tell us about Jesus? How does this, how can this be, uh, how can this refer to our lives today, right? First of all, this is a great picture of a need, right? There is a great need. The multitude has been in the wilderness for three days, have not eaten. Could you do that? Could you go out into the wilderness for three days and not eat? Well, you could, but would you? Probably not. I would imagine, especially if you got kids, where's McDonald's? I want a hamburger. I'm hungry. You know, how it would go. These people were wanting to hear about him, though. They wanted to hear what was going on. What does Jesus do? Well, we see a revelation of his love. And remember, we've been talking about the fact that he came from the house of Israel. But he is showing his compassion for all peoples, just like we saw with the miracle of the deaf mute last week. He was not the house of Israel. He was showing his compassion for all people. He has a consideration of grace, right, for these people. And we even see a question of helplessness. What his disciples, they're kind of taken aback. Wait a minute, we didn't prepare for this kind of thing. What are you talking about, feed these people? We didn't even think about that. We just were following you around in the wilderness here. Interesting concept, right? We see a command that he gives them requiring what? Faith. Trust, right? He's commanding him, take the seven loaves and the few fish. They got to trust him. They got to say, okay, we're going to go out here and feed 4,000 men. So if you say so, you know. And then we see a manifestation of God's power. That he is truly powerful. So much so that he had seven large baskets of food left over. 
just a, a super abundance left over, right? Started with seven loaves and a few small fish, and we got seven large baskets left over. He had plenty, more than plenty, showing his great power, his great love, his compassion for all men, and his willingness to provide. Not unlike the gospel, right? There's a need, right, today. We need to obey the gospel. We have no hope otherwise. We live in a dark, dying world that's going nowhere but to destruction. Do you know, do you know that? Do you realize that? There's love today. God our Lord and our Lord have provided love. He's given us grace, right? Yeah, there's helplessness. We can't do anything ourselves. He has provided the way. There's no way we can get to heaven unless it's through him. No way. He also gives us a command, right? To obey the gospel. To repent. To believe. To be baptized into Christ. Which requires our trust. Our faith, right? Our willingness to believe. And through that, we can have a manifestation, a great manifestation of power in our lives. And a superabundance of supply. Can every you in here think, say that you have not been blessed greatly by your, your faith in Christ Jesus? Does anybody here really think they've not received over and over an abundance, overabundance of blessings because of your faith? Very similar to what's going on in this miracle. It was quite different than the feeding of the 5,000 in that. It was to the Gentiles. It was in the wilderness. They'd been there a little bit longer. But it also shows his great grace for those who are in need. All peoples, not just the Jews. And it foreshadowed that grace that he was to give to all men that we read about in the Great Commission, right? It foreshadowed the fact that the gospel was for all, not just the Jews. Now, I know today we, we, we hear that and we think, well, okay, that's great. But think about how the Jews thought about that back then and to this day, right? They were not to associate with the Gentiles. They were not to even eat with them. Yet here, God, our Lord, is providing that way for all men. Interesting concept, one that we should be thankful for. I don't know too many in here that have a Jewish heritage. Maybe there is a couple of you that have that. But for the most part, I would think we're all Gentiles, right? We should be thankful that he did that. All right, moving on. Verse 11 of chapter 8. <clears throat> then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. Just as I was saying, have you really considered your life? Have you really considered what the Lord has done for you? Have you ever considered how the Lord reacts to your behavior? when you refuse to believe him, when you do not follow or obey. When 
we take part in obeying the gospel, we are putting our trust in the Lord. We are following his command, right? And when we fail to do that, well, Jesus sighs over it. We can see that here in these three verses, right? When we're not faithful to him, when we're doing our own thing, when we're trying to live a life like the world. Here we have the Pharisees coming out demanding a sign. Jesus had just returned to the western shores of Galilee. The Pharisees begin to dispute with him. They challenge him. Uh, and Matthew even adds that they were joined by the Sadducees. You can read that in Matthew 16. They demanded a sign, a sign from heaven, perhaps like Joshua got in Joshua 10 when they asked God to keep the sun up so they could uh, defeat the Syrians. What a... What an awful thing. They didn't believe. I mean, you know, they had to know about the miracles, right? They had to hear about the signs. I would imagine some of them had seen some of this. Yet they still got to try to trick him. They got to come out and demand a sign. Had they not seen these miracles? They were testing him, trying to catch him. They were hoping he would fail somehow, right? What a bunch of buffoons. It always irritates me to read these verses saying, are you idiots? Can you not see what's going on here? Right in front of your face. Yet you still got to hold up your authority, your, I don't know, your presence, your ultimate presence above everybody, right? Bunch of idiots. What's Jesus do? Well, he sighs in his spirit. I mean, what do you do when you have a kid that, just won't do what you want him to do or maybe you're a boss at work and you can't get your employees to get the job done you get the feeling here that Jesus knows these folks are going the wrong way they're going in the wrong direction and there's just nothing he can do about it oh he could do something but he's not gonna because they have a free will they have the choice. He's given them the choice, and he has a deep sigh in his spirit, in his heart, because they just don't get it. And they are, they get it, and they say, No way, man, we ain't gonna follow. Grieved by the hardness of hearts. <sighs> I mean, here we have a guy who sighed when he healed the deaf mute, he's, uh, he's groaned in his spirit. Seeing the grief of others, if you go read John 11, you can read about that. When the family is dealing with the, you know, the death of Lazarus and so forth. He has great compassion for the people, even those who will not believe. And it grieves him in the spirit. Luke 19, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem because he knows they do not believe. Today, Jesus observes our behavior just like he observed the behavior of those in the New Testament. Just like he observed the churches of Asia. I'm not going to go over to Revelation, but you know about the seven churches, right? Out of those seven churches, he, he uh, delivers a speech. Only two that he praised. The other five he found fault with. He's watching over. He knows what's going on, right? He knows how you're acting, how your conduct is not much different from the world. How your love is no different than the sinners. How 
persecution causes us to stumble, how anxiety or materialism causes us to be unfruitful. Hmm. Does that one kind of get you a little bit? You ever been anxious because you're afraid to share your faith? Hmm. Material things get in the way? He's discouraged when we abandon prayer because we're feeling guilty or just don't care. He's discouraged when we use human tradition to replace the commands of God. When denominationalism defeats his prayer for unity. When our love for the world replaces our love for his father. I know, I'm kind of speaking to the choir here, right? You're here in class time on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m. You passed a lot of people that were still a bit asleep on the way over here. I know that. But it doesn't hurt to be reminded of these things, right? We are here as a purpose. We're here for a purpose. It's not just to come be with your buddies. Yeah, that's a wonderful blessing to have. But we're here because of our love for the Father, not for our love of the world. The world is going to destruction. All you got to do is turn on the TV and watch the news. You know, the stuff's going on in the Middle East right now. It's just terrifying to think about. Why, why would anybody live in Israel? I, I, why would you live there? <laughs> you know, I just can't imagine. I know people have family and stuff there, and I understand all that. But why, why put yourself in that situation, you know? when You, you don't know when the next time somebody's going to put a gun to your head. The world's going to destruction. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be judged. It is being judged. And Jesus sighs because of it. From the sigh, we can learn that Jesus cared deeply. For those he was willing to heal, just like he did the deaf mute, right? And for those he's willing to save. So much so that he would go to a death on the cross for us. Have you really thought about that? Have you? Yeah, we, we talk about it, and it kind of becomes, I don't know, complacent in our lives, right? The man died for us. Would you do that for someone that didn't even care for you? I know I'm preaching a little bit. But I'm trying to make the point here. Jesus loved all of us from the deepest part of his heart, his spirit. So much so that he would die for each and every one of us. And when we don't believe, when we don't trust him, when we don't obey, he sighs in his spirit. It grieves him because we won't take it up. I mean, he's offering eternal life. For crying out loud, he's offering you to live forever in heaven with God. All you got to do is believe. Obey. That's it. All right. Moving on. Let's go to the next few verses here. Let's see what he gets into next. We're going to kind of segue from this 
into a teaching, a great teaching to his disciples, beginning at verse 14. He says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, See, is this because we have no bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? All right. Following this dispute with the Pharisees, Jesus begins to warn his disciples. As they sail across the Sea of Galilee, back to Bethsaida on the eastern shore, he's charging them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Matthew's gospel mentions the Sadducees as well, who are often aligned with Herod, and the disciples don't get it at first. They say, is he, is he telling us this because we forgot to bring some bread? They don't get it. Jesus corrects them. He corrects this misunderstanding, and he reminds them of his miracles. He said, don't you remember that? Didn't you see what we did there? He's referring to the leaven or the doctrine of these men, the Pharisees, the Rhodians, the Sadducees, and it's a good metaphor. It, it is a good metaphor for doctrine. Why? Well, because <clears throat> leaven, as you know, is subtle, kind of subtle thing, right? You put it in what the bread, and it causes it to rise. So you put it in the oven, and it comes out like you know, like this, and then it comes out like this. You know, it, it's kind of a miracle when you think about it. You don't see what's going on there, but it's kind of wild. Both can be very potent, right? And both gradually spread, spread their influence. Religious groups here are the Pharisees, which are known for their conservatism. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 23 and read what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They were strict observers of the law of Moses. They also adopted the tradition of the elders and the interpretation of law that had been handed down rather than just from Scripture. Matthew 23, and let's begin reading in verse 1. This is what Jesus said about them. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. In other words, they're hypocrites. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they, would, they themselves will not move will not move them with one of their fingers. But all of their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad, which is the box they held on their forehead because they want to keep Scripture on their minds, and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, 
he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it, and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple, swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have, neglect, have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would, have not, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. <clears throat> we usually hear about Jesus' compassion and his love, and that's a wonderful thing. And it's very true. He came to die for sinners. But don't let anybody ever tell you that he didn't say some harsh things. Righteous, harsh indignation. He saw the Pharisees for who they were, and he called them out. Fools! Blind guides! When the world wants to tell you okay I can do as long as it's a loving thing as long as I'm not hurting anybody I mean what after all Jesus was compassionate he loved people he also warned them because of that deep sigh in his heart interesting how he segues right into that right he has this deep grief because of the way the Pharisees are trying to test him and he goes on to tell the disciples beware of these people don't let them destroy your faith. And I read that in Matthew because that is a very long scripture, very long passage where he just, it's like he just let it all out, right? 
read that, probably don't get quite the... I mean, I could see a picture of him being red in the face, right? I don't know if he got loud about that. But he was pretty passionate about it, wasn't he? These people did some awful things. Made command of God no effect. They're hypocrites. Did things to be seen by men. They loved that. They loved the glory as opposed to the Father. Like the titles, the religious titles. Prevented others. Wait a minute. He said this. Prevented others from finding the way to the kingdom of heaven. Man. What's the passage? If you ever cause one of these children to hinder, it's better that you have a millstone put around your neck and dropped in the ocean, right? In the sea. He's passionate about that. These people use their religion to make money. Didn't make people better, as he said, just worse. Made distraction or made distinctions about things where God did not. Not only them, also the Sadducees, which are mentioned in Matthew. They taught and practiced things that were wrong. This is the religious, or, or religious group, also a political group, known for its liberalism, right? They, they said the only law should be coming from the Pentateuch or the Torah, which, which is true. Uh, they didn't keep the traditions of the elders as the Pharisees did. They rejected that. But they also didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits and angels, which is plain as day in the scripture. They did not believe in the reward of punishment. And Jesus charges them with two faults. Let's move over to Matthew 22 and see what he said about that. Just one chapter back. Verse um, 23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were, the, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the women died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection... Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Sadducees here, trying to trick him. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like, notice how he says this, angels of God in heaven. They didn't say they were angels. But they're like angels, remember, because the Sadducees don't believe in angels. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, and he's quoting Exodus 3, verse 6 here, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He hits them right to the heart. He says, they're like angels of men, and knowing they don't believe in angels, and then he tells them, and by the way, you take all the scripture from the Pentateuch, but you don't even know the scripture. And then you come after me. I can imagine that going through his mind. Again, he sighed because of these Pharisees and these Sadducees, because the people don't believe. Uses their own frailties against them there when they're trying to trick him. Yes. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. No reason to live. Yeah, absolutely. They're just existing, and that's it. They're here for a little while, and they're gone. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Well, these Sadducees, he, he, he rebukes the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's warning the disciples about the leaven. Beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be careful. Don't pay any attention to it. He also talks about uh, um, the uh, Herodians who were those who believed in the dynasty of Herod as opposed to the rule of Caesar, the rule of Rome. Uh, they were more of a political group, not so much a religious group. They would interchange with the Sadducees, kind of interchange with them too because they were more of the world than of the next world, right? They were more of this, the existing time, the, uh, the present time, and they would often, sometimes, I mean, they would align with the Pharisees when it became convenient, right? It was all about politics to them. Those who sought the solution through politics were more interested in worldly matters than kingdom comes first. In other words, the earthly kingdom was more powerful. What do we say about that? Of course, 1 Peter 2, Peter says we are pilgrims, right? We are not of this world. We're simply passing through. We are to avoid the worldly attachments and all the things that come with that. They use religion when it was convenient and get support of the masses. Does that sound familiar a little bit? Using religion when it's convenient? <laughs> Beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right, last few verses here we'll finish up today. Go back to Mark 8, and let's read on what's next. Verse 20, uh, 22, Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Interesting verse. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into town nor tell anyone in the town. All right, here we have another miracle being performed for a blind man at Bethsaida. Again, probably a Gentile. He healed many blind men, right? That was foretold by Isaiah. That was going to happen. Uh, interesting, though, this is a little different. This is the only account of this uh, healing here in Mark. You don't read about this in the other Gospels. And the only miracle that we know of that occurs in two stages, right? Jesus arrives in Bethsaida, near where the 5,000 were fed, and it's on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. This blind man's brought to him. They beg him to touch him because they know what he's been doing. His concerned friends, right? Similar to the memory, remember the paralytic who was lowered through the roof? Had to have some friends do it, right? He leads him by the hand away from the people, though. Similar to what he did with the deaf mute. Spits on his eyes and touched him. Similar to the deaf mute, perhaps to convey what he's about to do, using sign language perhaps. Well, actually, he's just a blind man. He didn't need to use sign language there, but he's telling what he used to. We're talking about the deaf mute. He was using sign language. Uh, the spit, of course, and showing attention that he's going to heal. Saliva is considered to have medicinal properties. And then the touch. He's saying someone could do something for your eyes. Then when he asks, he says, is a man like, he asked, when he first does it, he asks him if he can see. He said, I see men like trees walking. So obviously he doesn't see clearly yet. He just put his hand on his eyes again and made him look up. Sight was completely restored and very clear. 
Jesus sends him away, of course, admonishing him not to tell anyone. Why? Because he's already hindered enough. But he knows he's going to tell everybody, and they're going to tell everybody, and there's going to be more people coming out to see him, which was the intent. <clears throat> but he takes, um, he's, he's getting a lot of undue attention here from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's becoming more and more difficult to preach his ministry, right? Uh, don't know why this is done in two stages here. Perhaps it's kind of a foreshadowing of our lives as Christians. It comes in stages, right? Uh, spiritual lives doesn't just get changed overnight. Yeah, we're saved, but we have to grow spiritually. You know, we don't just um, get baptized and now we're ready to do it. And we know everything. We, we, we never know everything, right? Maybe something like that. Um, we are similar to that blind man, right? We are spiritually blind by our sin in need of healing. And if you ever think about it, that the blind man healing, there's so many of them. There's approximately eight in, in the New Testament, different times where blind man's healed. And if you think about that, that is, that is kind of a foreshadowing of our lives, right? We're blind. Without Jesus, we have no hope. We, we're simply just strolling around, feeling our way through this thing, right? He gives us direction. He gives us hope. What a wonderful thing. We are spiritually blinded by our sin and in need of healing, and we need the special attention of the Savior. All right, time is up. Thanks for being here.